So, you know, those, those statistics you hear that are scary about self-employment, really the scarier statistics are about working for someone else, you know, because how many people do you know that have actually worked for the same employer for five years? You know, yeah. I could, I could flip that on its head very easily. Welcome back to the Exploding Podcast. My name is Seja and I'm so excited today. This podcast is getting huge and huge love and support across the world. And thank you so much for all your DMs. It means the world to me. And I'm so grateful for each and every single one of you coming back every time to learn, execute and exploit. If you believe in what I'm doing, then consider subscribing to this part to keep you post. I'm super excited to connect you with today's guest. He's one of the leading online instructors in Udemy and has taught over 5 lakh students across the world, which includes more than 380,000 students with 4.5 average reviews just in Udemy. In the past years, with just 13 courses, he has made over $1 million. As you already know, he is none other than Frank Kane. Frank is an incredible teacher, senior developer, technical lead and an amazing author. Frank has spent nine years at Amazon and IMDB where he was developing and managing the technology that automatically delivers product and movie recommendations to hundreds of millions of customers all the time. Frank holds 17 patents in the field of distributed computing, data mining and machine learning. Back in 2012, Frank left to start his own successful company, Sundog Software, which focuses on virtual reality environment technology and teaching others about machine learning through Sundog Education brand. And I have been a huge fan of him for a very long time. The incredible thing about Frank, despite his huge impact, Frank stays so grounded and so much accessible. On top of all of that, he's an incredible human who made a huge shift from corporate to self-employment. And I can't wait anymore to start exploring with Frank Kane. Thank you so much for joining us, Frank. It really means a lot to me. Hey, thanks for having me. And that's, uh, you win the prize for the best intro there ever, by the way. Like, you, you did your homework. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Uh, but now you're going to be your teacher on self-employment, okay? <laughs> and the way I got to know about you is really, really interesting. I have a friend working for a corporate where they give UDB for business profiles for training. And the learning and training team in the company recommends your video courses for everyone getting into big data and data science. And that is how I got to know about you from my friend. And it's a very long back ago. And I hope this episode is going to be hugely transformative for everyone or anyone who wants to get into self-employment with technology. Uh, thank you so much, Frank. I really mean it. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm excited to like share what I've learned and maybe uh, help some other people along a similar path. And uh, I do want to point out that Udemy is just sort of where I started and Udemy for Business is a big part of the growth lately for sure. And I'm excited that you found me there, but we're on other, other platforms too. Uh, I think it was actually uh, Manning's live video platform that brought us together today. So a um, little shout out to Manning as well. Absolutely. Uh, Radmila from Manning Publications was uh, so engaging from the day one and he deserves a huge shout out from this Manning side. And they also have a free three courses giveaway of your video lectures on machine learning, data science, deep learning and everything. So audience can go check out the description all about the process and they can easily grab those copies by joining in uh, maybe in Instagram or LinkedIn, follow up the description and they can easily get that. And thanks for accepting our invitation. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, let me break this with my curious question. Uh, how old are you? <laughs> well, that's an easy one. Um, let, let me do the math. Uh, I am 49 years old. <laughs> do you really want to believe me that? No, I'm not going to do that because you don't look like a 49-year-old person. Uh, absolutely not. Trust me. <laughs> Just for now. <laughs> it's the hat, you know. If, uh, 
Yeah, there's no hair under this hat, so that's that's my little secret. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we never got a chance to see you without hat in any of your videos, right? So possibly, and also like, let me begin with. Uh, I know that you have multiple designations, right? You are the founder of this Sundog Education, also like a founder of this Sundog Software. Like, what is what, and which came first, and what are the deep purpose behind each of them? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there's a good story behind that in terms of like how to approach opportunities in life, really. So. Um, you know, when I left Amazon in 2012, I guess it was, that was totally motivated just by some family concerns. I mean, we couldn't take the weather in Seattle any longer, so we picked up and moved to Florida. And uh, I had to, you know, put food on the table somehow. So mm-hmm. I figured I'd try self-employment in, before I went back to a, you know, corporate job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and initially, the idea was just to write uh, simulation software. So um, I have a background as a video game developer and computer graphics. So initially, I started a company called Sundog Software, that created real-time 3D graphics for, you know, visualizing the sky and clouds and oceans and things like that that are used in flight simulators and things like that. Mm. So that's where Sundog Software came from. Uh, but, you know, over time, um, I started doing more and more um, work in the online education space. So I did some uh, contract gigs for a company called uh, General Assembly in New York, mm. and that ultimately led to a call from Udemy saying, hey, you know, we need someone to produce uh, courses on big data on our platform. You want to give it a try. Cool. And um, once that took off, um, that's how Sundog Education came to be. So Sundog Education is technically just a brand name under Sundog Software, uh, but it's mm. a good story of how, you know, you need to follow these opportunities that present themselves, and not all of them will work out, but sometimes they will. And when they do, you have to adapt, and that's how Sundog Education came to be. Great. Um, that was beautifully said. And as you mentioned, like Sundog Software deals with virtual reality and all. So do you have any experience working with VRs and gaming before before you get into big data and all? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, my very first job, well, my very first real job, I should say, was actually working at a video game company called Sierra Online out in California. And they made some of the early adventure games like King's Quest and Police Quest and Leisure Suit Larry, stuff like that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that out there. But yeah. Um, you know, they were some of the first, uh, you know, graphical computer games that existed, really. Uh, and from there, I went on to work for a company called Looking Glass Studios in Cambridge, um, where we produced a flight simulator called Flight Unlimited. And um, after that, I came down to Florida to uh, work in the simulation industry and uh, flight simulators and things like that. Yeah, but uh, when you had this experience with gaming and simulations, when did this transformation happen to machine learning, data science and big data? Yeah, again, it's just being open to opportunities that present themselves, really. Uh, So while I was working in uh, the simulation field, doing flight simulation and military simulation stuff, one day out of the blue, I got a call from Amazon.com in Seattle. And they said, hey, you know, we found your resume online. Looks like you're a smart guy, a good programmer. Uh, We'd like to talk to you. (laughs) So, you know, Amazon, at least at the time, had a pretty open mind in terms of they didn't really care about specific skills so much as, you know, someone who is just generally able to create software and solve hard problems using new technologies. Mm. Um, and, you know, they they thankfully saw that in me. Uh, ultimately, it led to a job offer. So I picked up from Florida and moved my family out to Seattle. And uh, yeah, they, they, they sort of like threw me in the water and it was sort of a sink or swim kind of thing. Uh, this was back in like 2003. So Data science wasn't really a thing back then. We were kind of making it up as we went. (laughs) Um, You know, there was definitely a lot of theory around it, but, you know, we were some of the first people to apply that to things like recommender systems. So um, a lot of it was made up as we went. And, you know, things like Hadoop didn't exist back then. Spark didn't exist back then. So, Mm. you know, Kubernetes didn't exist back then. We had to develop our own versions of all these technologies from scratch. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I just kind of like learned by doing there and uh, spent nine years at Amazon doing it. And if you spend nine years doing something, you'll probably end up as an expert. <laughs> Absolutely. And how about your work with uh, IMDb? Like when did you got into that? Oh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so IMDb um, is actually a subsidiary of Amazon.com. So hmm. after about seven years at Amazon, I kind of got, you know, the seven year itch where I wanted to do something new. So I transferred to uh, IMDb, uh, which is, you know... A, a subsidiary of Amazon, but it's really run like its own internal company to a large extent. So it has a very, a very different culture. It's a much smaller atmosphere, and it was a lot of fun. My role there was actually uh, I was in charge of engineering for the IMDb.com website and also for their uh, mobile app, which I still use today. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really interesting. But uh, when you've been through this big data, machine learning, and all of that, what are the situations in your life that made you to take this decision of moving off from companies and becoming self-employed with a business? Yeah, I mean, you know, some people are kind of forced into that situation, right? You know, but um, hmm. in my case, it was more driven by family concerns. So after nine years in Seattle, it really is cloudy all the time there, except for like, you know, a month or two during the summer. And that gets to people after a while. So, you know, just to keep my family happy, we decided to move uh, someplace sunnier. So that's really what drove it. It, was, it wasn't really a conscious decision to say, I'm going to leave the corporate world behind for self-employment. It was more of a, a case of, I'm leaving and I need to make money somehow. So <laughs> how am I going to do that? Okay. Um, so, you know, you see a lot of stories like this out there where, you know, a lot of people don't really choose self-employment. They're, they're kind of thrust into it. Mm. And some people make it work. Some people don't. Yeah. Uh, if you're not really forced into it immediately, you have the benefit of being able to prepare for it a little bit, though, right? So, Absolutely. You know, you can make sure that you have enough savings to, uh, you know, weather a few months of low income. Mm. Uh, make sure you have enough in the bank so that you have the opportunity to experiment with new self-employment ideas and, uh, you know, give yourself a little bit of time to find what works and what doesn't. Mm. And yeah, I totally agree with that because like a few situations in our life, like they literally mouths the way that we never, ever thought of being, right? And that's how it actually happens in a lot of times. And why do you think that uh, self-employment is actually more benefiting than being in a corporate company? Oh, well, um, you know, you don't really appreciate this until you experience it. You know, uh, the, the big thing is just the personal freedom that you get from it. Mm. Um, and that was sort of an unexpected thing that, that came with self-employment. So there is a real liberating feeling about, um, you know, being able to choose your own hours, being to choose what you work on, yeah. uh, you know, and just having complete autonomy over when, where, and how you work. What's even better is if you can have self-employment that's more of a passive income sort of a thing or a residual income scheme, kind of like we're doing with online courses, because I don't even have, you know, clients that I'm like doing a contract for. So, you know, a lot of people go into self-employment and they start doing freelance work, right? That's really not any different in terms of personal freedom because you've just traded one boss for many bosses <laughs> that are your clients. Um, but if you can work out a situation where you're selling a product, you know, ideally online, uh, the freedom that comes with that is really, really eye-opening. Mm. And also, as you just said, like the freelancing is one of the approaches that you can be self-employed. Mm -hmm. Like, What do you say about like, is it good to be working on freelancing works and managing your works aside? Or is it is it okay to jump out of your work and resign your job and you just be on uh, becoming the best self-employed? Well, I think it depends a lot on your personality and what motivates you, right? So to be, you know, truly self-employed and work as a freelancer, you need a lot of self-discipline. Hmm. And you need to know how to do what you're doing already, right? So, you know, some people need more structure. Yeah. And that's okay. If you are someone who needs a more structured environment and someone telling you what to do, 
Um, you know, a lot of times it makes sense to start off with more of a traditional full-time employment kind of arrangement. And, you know, as you become an expert, maybe you can branch off and do freelancing later on, but it's not for everybody, quite honestly. Um, I have some friends who have tried going into the self-employment realm and uh, they're not happy with it just because they don't like the uncertainty, you know. Uh, they like the comfort of knowing that they're going to get a paycheck of the same amount every month, uh, no matter what. Hmm. Um, in reality, there's just as much risk working for someone else as there is for yourself. But, uh, you know, that's that's another topic. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, self-employment isn't for everyone. And I recognize that. Totally. And and also in other way, like when someone when someone got this idea to start a business and they want to own their own company and they wanted to serve different people and they want to earn from it with serving others. Mm -hmm. So when they have this thought in the brain, they have one goal uh, making up their business successful. Right. But these people, uh, when I'm talking only about the people who are in industry of computers like software. Right. So what personally I feel when someone tries to start a business, the mind continuously says, like, I'm not rich. Like, mm. how, how in the world I can start a business? I'm not rich yet, right? So did you feel the same? Or, like, how, how can, like, people really need to be rich to start a business? No, you don't. Um, but, you know, you need to have enough saved up to get through uh, lean times, right? So you want to make sure you have at least three months' worth of income in the bank to live off of because it's very realistic that you might have three months of a slow period, especially when you're starting. Yeah. You know, you want to make sure you have at least mon enough money in the bank to have time to go back and look for, you know, a quote unquote real job if you need to. <laughs> but you don't need to be rich. Um, you know, contrary to popular belief, everyone that works at Amazon is not rich off of stock options. <laughs> so when I left uh, Amazon in Seattle, in Seattle, um, you know, I had about three, three or four months worth of income in my pocket. Um, mm -hmm. I did get a lot of stock options, but I tended to exercise them as soon as I got them. So it was really more of a part of my salary than anything else. Right. So uh, you don't need to be rich to start a business. You just need to the the gumption to do it and the determination and the perseverance to follow through on it yeah 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 and i think this conversation will surely help out at least someone who is uh, so skeptical about uh, this transformation and well there are many transforming ways to start a business but i would like to reverse engineer your journey of becoming a successful self-employed like where others could relate to those exploiting situations so where did your journey of becoming a self-employed uh, has begun? Like, how did you actually made it till here? Oh, well, yeah, let's go into a little bit more detail about how that all happened. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, first I made sure, well, not only did I make sure that I had enough money in the bank to, uh, you know, have enough time to find a, a quote-unquote real job if I had to, if things didn't work out, um, there, there were several other strategic things that I did mm. along the way. One was that I started working on this product that I intended to sell before I even left my 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 uh, full time job. So just by putting in some time on the weekends or you know after work, I was able to prototype a product and put it on the market on the internet and validate that there was a market for it. So by the time that I tendered my resignation at Amazon, I had data telling me that I'm pretty sure I can pay the bills um, for a little while off this thing that I built. Right. So I didn't just you know, up and quit and hope for the best. Um, I, I worked hard in my spare time, what little there was of it, to prototype a product, put it on the market, and make sure that it was viable uh, before I, you know, left my day job, so to speak. Um, so that's one way to minimize yeah, that and risk. Yeah, when we try to become a successful self-employed in this new phase of our journey, right, we'll be surely so skeptical about the downfalls, right? And what comes in so healthy hand, uh, that would be the plan B and plan C, like the fallback plans, right? So do you used to have any fallback or, or plan Bs uh, in your journey? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm 
There was a book uh, about 10 or so years ago called Only the Paranoid Survive, and I, I very much subscribe <laughs> by that philosophy. So uh, I always have a plan B and a plan C in, in my head for everything, and uh, I think that, that has served me well. So, you know, if things were not to work out with uh, online education, you know, if that suddenly dried up, which seems extremely unlikely right now, um, I could always fall back to that uh, computer simulation work that I was doing originally, right? So that's kind of like plan B right now. And plan C would be going back into the workforce and working for a local uh, company. You know, I mean, I think my, hopefully my experience isn't, uh, you know, too stale yet and I, I could still get a job if I wanted to. <laughs> that's absolute. I don't think you need to worry about it. Um, but when people try out to adapt new culture into their lifestyle, what I found personally is that people would start overthinking and would plan to have multiple fallbacks like plan A, plan B, plan C and D and further. In the journey with full of fallbacks and a vision, they try their best and if that possibly wouldn't work out, they just say like, I give up, right? So what do you say about it? Like, is it good to have multiple fallbacks or let me have one goal, one mission and one mission and let's move ahead? Well, I think when you're starting, you need to try different things and see what sticks, right? So, um, you know, if you can, you know, it's a good idea to try multiple different ways of making money on your own and, uh, you know, just see which one is actually working for you and double down on that once you identify it. So, hmm. um, you know, I, I think it's more about being open to new unexpected opportunities that might arise than about having a plan B and a plan C and a plan D because oftentimes the biggest opportunities are not the ones that you thought of. Uh, online education being an example for me, right? I never would have thought I'd be, uh, you know, making millions of dollars selling video courses around the world. Hmm. Um, it just sort of happened. And, you know, if I had said no to that phone call when they called me up and said, hey, you want to make a course for us? Um, none of that would have happened, right? It's all just about being open to these opportunities and being willing to put some time into them and trying them out. And if you do that enough times, eventually you'll find something that works. Totally. And when we look into the initial phases of people getting started into the business, what do you think those common reasons that causes business failures for young people? Um, I would say lack of perseverance. Hmm. And that's not necessarily specific to young people, but just to people in general. So a lot of people give up too soon, right? Um, let's talk about, you know, the first time that I put out an online course, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I was solicited directly by a large e-learning platform and they said, you know, we have a need for this kind of a course on our platform. So that was a pretty good signal that this should be successful. But, you know, I spent a few months making that course and I published it and not a whole lot happened at first. You know, the first month, I think it made like $200 or something like that, which is a terrible return on, you know, three months worth of time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of people at that point would have given up and they would have said, well, that's a failure. Uh, let's do something else. Hmm. Uh, but um, instead, I doubled down on it. You know, I said, OK, well, I put this time into it. I really want it to be successful. Uh, what can I do to help it be successful? So I created a second course, did some cross promotion between the two courses, uh, offered the first, you know, put out like a, a teaser course that was free as a sort of a lead magnet. And with a little bit of extra effort, um, you know, that's when it really started to take off. And we started to see some exponential growth of sales on that course. And that's what led to where we are today. So um, great. I guess the, the biggest failure mode is just giving up too soon. But, you know, at the same time, you don't want to beat a dead horse either. You know, you don't want to, like, keep uh, doubling down on something that's not working. Uh, mm. But, you know, you, you just have to, like, 
you know, within reason, don't give up too soon, I guess is the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and most commonly, uh, what makes people give up quickly is that there are some social statistics that scares many people away from self-employment, like um, one in new business fails within six months, like three of forward startups shut down within five years and nine out of 10 companies operating today will eventually fail, right? So how do you keep yourself up to move ahead without any of these delusions? Well, I mean, a couple of things I want to point out there. First of all, those statistics can be misleading, right? So mm. if you say nine out of 10 businesses eventually fail, of course they do. All businesses eventually fail. Like, <laughs> name a business that's been around forever. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ford maybe. I mean, it's a very small number. So that's not something to necessarily be worried about. Mm. And yeah, maybe... Uh, Maybe 50% of businesses don't last five years, but maybe it wasn't a bad story. Maybe the person sold that business and made a bunch of money in the process. Uh, maybe they just pivoted to a different business, you know? I mean, um, you know, I'm not really spending a whole lot of time doing simulation software these days. Does that mean that my business was a failure? No, it just means that I pivoted to, to doing something different that was working out better. Yeah. So, you know, those, those statistics you hear that are scary about self-employment, Really, the scarier statistics are about working for someone else, you know, because how many people do you know that have actually worked for the same employer for five <laughs> years? You know, I could I could flip that on its head very easily. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to, to answer the question more directly, um, you know, you always have to diversify. You know, you, you need to make sure that you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. So, mm. you know, yes, any individual online education platform could fail, but I'm on several. So that wouldn't be the end of the world. Um <laughs> You know, I, I'm not just doing online education. I'm doing some other little businesses here and there as well. So I don't have to worry too much about, you know, not being able to feed my family, you know, even in a worst case scenario. Yep. So what are the things that you need to look into when you decide to make a transition to self-employment, including taxes and other unexpected expenses? Oh, there's so many. Um, a lot of it is very specific to a given country or, or state. I mean, I can only speak to how things work in the United States. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of unexpected expenses. First and foremost being um, health care. So um, in the U.S. at least, you know, health insurance or health care is not something that's provided to you by the government. You have to buy health insurance. And typically, if you work for a company, they'll subsidize some of that. But if you're self-employed, you have to pay the full cost of that. And uh, just to make it real... For my family of three that I'm supporting right now, uh, that's about $2,000 per month uh, for a health plan that has something like a $10,000 deductible. So it's a huge expense that you might not see coming originally. Hmm. Uh, the other is self-employment taxes. So um, the tax law in the United States really doesn't like people working for themselves. <laughs> um, and again, it's a case where your employer would be subsidizing some of this normally, uh, paying toward your uh, Medicare and Social Security taxes. But when you're self-employed, you have to pay that full amount yourself. And that's also a large expense that a lot of people don't account for. Yeah, and also I think it's good to have a specific person managing the accounts and taxes when we are totally into our work. Uh, and also, when I started researching about self-employment, I have found this very interesting strategy called business plan, mm -hmm. right? So uh, can you break it down for us? Like what, what was the business plan all about, what it includes and what it takes? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about business plans, quite honestly. So um, <laughs> I think it's useful when you're starting. Uh, so when I first moved to Florida, I had great support from a local business incubator. And this is a government-funded program that just tries to help people launch new small businesses uh, within uh, the county that I'm in in Florida. Mm. And as part of that, they, give you, they put you through kind of like an entrepreneur school. And they make you do things like write a business plan where you have to like put down in writing what it is you're going to build. Uh, what is your model for making money off of it? How? What are your projections for this? You know, over the coming years, 
And it's a great way to make you sort of crystallize your thoughts about, uh, is there a market for this product? Um, you know, how are you going to make money off of it? Will you make enough money off of it? Uh, is this a viable idea or not? So when you're starting, that's important, right? Because your gut is always to do what you want to do, yeah. to do what excites you personally, and to build something that you find interesting. Hmm. Uh, but the market doesn't care about what you find interesting, right? <laughs> so you know, you need to make sure you're building something that people need that uh, that they can't get today, and you know, do that in such a way where you can make enough money to you know live comfortably in the process. And that might involve you know thinking about subscriptions or you know different ways of charging for what you do. And thinking about how you price what you're offering as well. So yeah. a business plan can be very useful for helping you get through that process initially. Uh, but once you've started actually, you know, getting into a cycle and get into a rhythm of, you know, doing what you're doing as a self-employed individual, it becomes much less important. You know, it's more about, um, like I said, just being open to new opportunities and trying them out quickly. Um, you know, I don't necessarily... Well, I don't write a business plan uh, for new projects anymore. Um, but when I was first sort of like getting into the entrepreneur mindset, I think it was a useful tool. And as soon as you go ahead, like you keep doing it, you are, you absolutely get used to it, right? So you don't need to specifically work on it. Right. Yeah, it sort of becomes an intuitive thing after a while. Totally. And the good part is like you will get to know like uh, what are the things that you need to work more upon and what are the things that you don't need to. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's also more important if you're looking for partnerships or outside investments, of course, you know, you're going to need a whole lot more uh, preparation and paperwork if you're asking other people to give you money to support your idea. Uh, so, you know, there, there are kind of like two kinds of ways of going about self-employment. One is what we call sort of a growth business where you're going to take outside investment and hire a bunch of people and, you know, really bet the farm on what you're doing. And the other is what I'm doing, which is more of a lifestyle business where it's just me. Uh, you know, I hire some contractors here and there to help me out, but, yeah. um, you know, I'm not asking for outside investments, so I don't need as much formality in what I'm doing. Yeah. And how about the marketing side of your business? How do you how do you manage to reach your content to the thousands and lakhs and millions of people out there? Well, you know, a lot of that's done by uh, the e-learning platforms themselves. So online education is kind of a, a, a unique place where you put your product on these marketplaces and the marketplace is responsible largely for uh, marketing them for you. That's that's what you're giving them a cut of your revenue for. Hmm. And they are much more effective at doing this than you will ever be, right? So these platforms have audiences of millions of people. You know, at best you have thousands, right? So yeah. uh, it really, really makes sense to let them focus on the marketing aspect. Um, lately, I've been trying to launch my own website and trying to do my own marketing around it. And, you know, it's, you know, reasonably doing reasonably okay. I mean, you know, it's a good, you know, diversification strategy again, uh, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what these bigger platforms are doing. Yeah. You know, for example, Manning connected us and I'm doing podcasts right now. I, I, would, <laughs> I would never have done that on my own. Yeah. Right? But I don't think Udemy will be so helpful when we are in the initial phases, right? Let's suppose uh, today's the day where you release your first course in Udemy or any other online learning platforms. Uh, I don't think those companies would help you to reach to the world, right? So, but but it will eventually help for you when the course has a good ramp after a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, right? But in the very initial phases, uh, how do you how do you manage to make it reach to all your audience and uh, make it to the good ramp? Yeah, getting started is harder now than it's ever been because there's more online instructors now than there have ever been. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people have lost their jobs over the past few months and a lot of people are turning to online instructing as a way to try to, you know, make some extra cash. So yeah. it's hard to find topics where there's not a lot of competition right now. But that's really the key. Um, you know, you shouldn't be thinking about how do I market my new course after you've launched it. You should be thinking about that before you even start creating it. Mm. Because the most important thing is the, your choice of a topic. 
So if you create, you know, yet another Adobe Photoshop course that competes with a thousand other courses out there already and these entrenched top sellers that have, you know, thousands upon thousands of students, you're never going to break into that, right? Hmm. You need to find a topic that people are both looking for, that there's a big demand for, and for which there's not a lot of existing content. And you need to do it well, right? Yeah. And oftentimes this means niching down, you know, doing a more specific subtopic than what you initially envisioned maybe. Uh, but really putting a lot of thought and strategy into your topic selection is what's going to drive the success of your new course. If students are searching for a topic and your course is the only one that comes up, they're going to buy your course. Absolutely. And that's all the marketing you need. <laughs> yeah. The hardest part is that there will be multiple instructors on one subject with different flavors, various approaches, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really, really competitive to grab the learner. And the most confusing part for the learner is that the Udemy provides most of the courses with similar price, right? <laughs> and it's not like I choose a course just because it's under my budget. Yeah. So how do you create that difference among all of the instructors? And what sort of approaches that you follow up to do that? Well, you know, first of all, in a situation where everything's being offered at a low price, a lot of people buy more than one course in a given topic. So, um, for example, in the field of machine learning, and I think there's a, a code for this for Manning that you'll be giving out for people later to get that for free, actually. Yeah. Talk about a low price. <laughs> You know, you can't be free. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm not the number one selling machine learning course on any of these platforms. You know, I'm like number two or number three at best. But it still, you know, does really well because it's such a popular topic. And a lot of people buy more than one course because they're so cheap, right? So, mm. you know, you don't necessarily have to be the winner to, to be successful. <laughs> um, but as for differentiating, I think most people are looking at, you know, the the number of reviews. Uh, obviously, the review score, uh, the free preview videos, Um I put a lot of thought into my promotional videos and my course landing pages to make sure that when a new student is looking at my course for the first time, that first impression is a positive one. And, uh, you know, really that's more important than anything. Yeah. Um, students make these buying decisions very quickly because it's not a lot of money at stake. And you need to make sure that, you know, that landing page is, is as good as it can be. That's interesting. And let's suppose uh, I really, really wanted to become an online instructor in Udemy or, or become a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. So do you have a guide to break the process simple for someone just like me? Do you have any checklist further on it? Uh, well, I, I should give my, my own self-published book a plug here. <laughs> I actually wrote a book on that called The Ultimate Online Course Creation Guide. It's, it's on Amazon if you want to look it up. Great. Uh, but it goes into all the details of kind of like what my process is for creating a new course and uh, the, what my checklist actually is. Um, and yeah, there's a checklist. You know, you need to make sure that you're, you have a launch plan. Uh, you know, although I, I still stand by the statement that your own marketing isn't important compared to what the platforms do for you, it's still something you want to do. So you want to make sure that you're at least, uh, you know, sending a message to your existing followers that you've launched a new course. And for me, that's going to be, you know, my own mailing list, uh, you know, my existing students on these platforms, uh, you know, social media, putting some uh, sample videos up on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. So there's a lot of sort of like magnets that, you know, have these evergreen leads into the course that need to be updated when you launch a new course. So, yeah, there, there's a bunch of stuff you have to do for sure. Hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and also you are into technical and you got to choose big data and machine learning and data science, all of that as a topic. But what about the others? Like how did, how could they find out their interesting part where they have audience for and they could work upon more to serve and they could earn from it, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely some research you can do. Um, hmm. Some of the platforms have really good tools for giving you insights into what the demand is for a given topic and what the existing competing courses in that topic are and what they look like and, you know, how yours needs to be better. Um, and, and a big part of that is going to be the length of your course on these platforms where every course costs the same amount of money. Um, 
So, you know, for example, Udemy has a Udemy Insights tool for instructors where it will give you very concrete data on what, how many students are looking for a topic and what courses they're currently finding that you need to compete with. So the, the data is all there for you. If you're not going to be on Udemy, um, a lot of times, you know, other, um, well, you know, sometimes they'll approach you. So that's always a good sign. <laughs> you know, if, if someone is coming to you from a platform saying we need, you know, content in this topic, then yeah. there's probably a demand for it. Yeah. Um, but also you can do things like Google Trends, you know, just doing some research on, you know, search trends on, you know, given topics to see what's hot and what's not. Mm, yeah. And also in the same way, like when I when I actually f see some instructors who are doing really good job on building an amazing courses in Udemy or any other platforms. So what I see eventually, they move off from the Udemy, they delete or remove all of the courses from Udemy, and they shift to their own personal site. Yeah. Right. So they start working upon their own business and they start working upon their own website, doing all of that what they used to do in Udemy. So what would be that reason for the shift? Well, um, you know, I think it's just an example of people, you know, trying different things and seeing what works, you know, kind of like the, it's kind of the theme of this interview, I think. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the platforms like Udemy aren't going to work for everybody. And for some people, it might be a different platform. You know, I mean, if you're teaching, uh, you know, Photoshop or something like that, you might find that you do better on Skillshare than Udemy, for example. Mm. And if you, uh, you know, have a, a good presentation style, uh, you know, a platform like Manning, uh, where they can really like showcase, you know, your videos in the best possible light and you know they have these like really cool transcripts that accompany them and stuff and let you search them you know maybe that's going to be the right platform for you so you know udemy isn't going to be the answer for everybody uh manning's not going to be the answer for everybody you know everyone's going to have a different thing that works for them yeah and you know if somebody is not seeing the ex the success they expected on udemy or, or someplace else then trying their own site might make sense um my experience is that that's much easier said than done mm. uh, because you know again you know you're starting from a much smaller audience and if you're dealing with a glut of courses in a topic on the platforms that's that glut is still going to exist outside of that platform as well so yeah you know really it comes down to topic selection again more than anything but i have my own website too uh, like i said it's doing okay but uh, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what I get from the uh, the large marketplaces. Yeah, yeah. And what do you say about this? Like when someone trying out to become an online instructor, is it good to go and release the courses in Udemy and all other platforms? Or is it preferred to build our own application with our courses in it and market it further? I mean, it depends on your existing audience, right? So if you don't have millions of followers already, which is like <laughs> everybody, uh, you're probably better off, you know, starting off on a marketplace and at least validating, you know, what you have there. Um if you find success there and you build up that audience over time, uh, you know, you can think about launching your own site. But, you know, if you're not a marketing expert, if you're not an online advertising expert, uh, you know, it's going to be very hard to get your own site off the ground. And especially in technology, right? Mm. I mean, a, a person that's expert enough in technology to make a course about it probably isn't also an expert in online marketing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the odds are stacked against you in that case. You know, it's better to leave that to people who, who know what they're doing. And uh, that's what these uh, big marketplaces do. You know, that's their job. So, you know, in, in business in general, like you want to let other people help you and things that you're not good at. And yeah. This is just another, another example of that. <laughs> and also on the other hand, uh, I see a lot of piracy happening in the video courses available in Internet. Like when we give uh, access to the courses with very low price and also entire world would be accessing it. Yeah. I see a lot of piracy happening in the further ways. Right. Yeah. So how do you manage to control this piracy? How do you how do you prevent it in Sundog or Udemy or any other platforms? Yeah, I could tell you some horror stories. Um, 
you, you just have to remain vigilant. Um, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, quite honestly, because anybody can, you know, capture video from a computer screen. And if they if they really want to try hard enough, they're going to pirate your course. Yeah. Um, the only consolation, I mean, in, in, in a lot of cases, people that consume this pirated content probably wouldn't have paid for it anyway. So, like, the actual monetary loss isn't that big of a deal. Um, refund abuse is a different story, and we, we could talk about that too. But yeah. um, <laughs> You know, unless I see something egregious where, you know, someone is presenting my course in such a way that it looks like it's a legitimate copy of it Mm. and they're actually trying to make money off of it, you know, that's when I'll, like, file a DMCA takedown and in some cases even get lawyers involved to to protect that IP. Mm. Uh, So you kind of have to choose your battles with that. Uh, Piracy is is always going to be a problem with any online content. Uh, You have to kind of choose strategically how much effort you want to put into it. Yeah. Looking at it from another view, uh, when we try to build some video courses, mm-hmm. we unintentionally use a few copyrighted images or video clips, right? Yeah. So do you have a situation getting sued in corporate cases and uh, how, how we could manage that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Copyrights cut both ways, right? So uh, not only are people stealing your stuff, but you might unintentionally steal someone else's stuff. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, that happened to me once. So um, once I was looking for free uh, images to use uh, on my website, hmm. and I found one of these free image websites, and I found this little picture of a street sign that said something. I forget what it was at this point. <laughs> uh, so I downloaded it, and, and I put it on my website. And I thought, you know, it's fine. It's a free image. You know, it's public domain. What could go wrong? Well, a few months later, I got a letter from someone's lawyer saying, oh, actually, this image is copyrighted and uh, we're, you know, you could be subject to uh, fines up to $100,000. Oh, my God. Uh, You know, you need to settle with us and give us, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in order to for us to not prosecute you. (laughs) And it turns out it was like kind of a scam where someone was putting out an image on the web saying it was free, Mm. but it really wasn't. And they were like searching for people using their sort of bait that they put out there to sue them. Um, so you got to be really careful. Um, it ended up costing me thousands of dollars to settle this thing. Um, so today I only use images that I've created myself or that I can prove that I have a license for from, uh, mm. I use something called iStockphoto.com, which is like a Getty images site. And they offer some indemnity against this sort of a thing. And they also allow you to prove that you hold a, a paid license for any images that you're using. So you, you definitely have to be careful with that. Yeah. And as you just mentioned earlier, the interesting thing about Udemy attracts the student is is by no risk that it a fund and no questions asked policy, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a high possibility that people also abusing it, right? So what do you say about this policy? It's definitely a growing problem. Um, you know, if I look at the, uh, the percentage of my revenue that's being lost to refunds, it's been growing a lot in the past year or two. And we're definitely seeing people where People are just consuming a course as quickly as possible and, you know, making sure they finish it within that 30-day refund window and getting that refund when they're done so they get it for free. Mm. Um, it really struck home because uh, recently I was trying to hire a new teaching assistant to help out with answering questions on our courses. And uh, to do that, my first step was to look at my existing students and try to find the students that were the most engaged with my courses and reach out to them to see if they wanted to help out. Mm. And it turned out that if I looked at the students that had actually consumed all of my courses and, you know, were active in, in questions and like really were engaged with content, in a lot of cases, they had refunded every one of those courses. <laughs> like, that, what? Like, not only did you steal my content, but like, I gave you my time, dude. Like, that's, yeah. that's not okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an issue. Um, Udemy is aware of it. And, you know, they are, they have said that they're going to do something about it this year. I don't know what, but I think their, their refund policy will probably be adjusted uh, sometime in the coming months. Uh, let's hope for the best. And as you have been teaching a lot of students from years, so what do you prefer to say something to someone who is trying to learn something new? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is to make sure that you've got the prerequisite skills you need before diving into a more advanced topic. So hmm. one thing I hate to see is new students getting frustrated, right? And that's that's just not good for anybody. So, you know, I do see a lot of people who are like, you know, I'm gonna, you know, make a jillion dollars doing machine learning and deep learning and recommender systems and stuff. And they, they dive right into it without having any programming experience or linear algebra or, you know, computer algorithms. And that's just a, a recipe for disappointment, right? Hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I want to like encourage everyone and say, yeah, you can do this. But the truth is you need to do a little bit of homework first. So, you know, maybe you should take an introductory Python course first. Uh, maybe you should go take a linear algebra course first, you know, just don't let, let me put that in a more positive light so if you find yourself getting frustrated hmm. uh you know take a step back ask yourself you know is there something else is there a more fundamental skill that i need before i move into this course yeah um, and if so you know go address that you know and come back to that course later on and give it another try once you have that expertise under your belt and you'll probably find it's a much more rewarding and um, successful experience after doing that Hmm. And uh, what do you say about this pandemic situations are actually unpredictable and the things are getting changed a lot and things are getting so much online learning mostly, right? Yeah. And also uh, even the Stanford University, which made a lot of its process make it online, right? Yep. So what do you think about uh, the world-class education during this pandemic and post-pandemic as well? Uh, gosh, it's hard <laughs> to say. I, you know, I think I see a lot of pushback on it, honestly, these days. Um, a lot of people kind of want to get back to that in-person learning experience. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I think a lot of people are more open to online education than they used to be. But uh, I don't think this uh, pandemic is going to change the world once it's all over. I think a lot of people are going to go back to the way it was. And, you know, let's be honest, there's a big financial interest in things going back to the way they were. You know, I mean... Uh, you know, Harvard can't really charge, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to their students if it's all online. So, <laughs> you know, they, they need to provide more to the experience than that. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I think, you know, the day will come where, you know, everything is online when education. And I think that would be a great day because, you know, people can sort of like strategically do these surgical strikes on specific knowledge that they need to get something done instead of, you know, investing years of their lives and, you know, all of their you know, a good chunk of their lifetime income, you know, to get that knowledge. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I still believe very much in the promise of online education, but I, I think it will continue to be a slow transformation. Yeah. And I want to know one more thing. Uh, we are almost at the end, but I want to know, like, when you release a new course and when you get a new topic to make course upon, right, you go through a process, even if you don't know a set of few things, you try to learn them, right? And then you make the best out of it, Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you learn to learn and what is your learning style? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's kind of interesting because I actually don't learn well through online videos <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I kind of like view my job as like transforming learning from, you know, hands-on experimentation and from books and, and, and stuff that I've read into videos. Mm. Uh, so that's that's how I learn. So when, I, when I'm presented with something new that I need to, to learn, I'll just sort of immerse myself in it and... Generally, creating a new course involves a few stages. One is that research phase, you know, it's that, that self-education. Because no matter how much of an expert you are in your field, there's always going to be new technologies that you need to learn. Mm. And, you know, what I'll usually do is start by looking at, you know, the documentation, obviously, start there. Uh, usually there's some, like, you know, examples within the documentation that you can play with just to gain some confidence with the, with the system yourself. Um, you know, if there's a book available, I'll read that, too. Um, and as I'm learning it, I'll make notes. You know, these are the main important points that you want to teach somebody. Hmm. Uh, start, start to get a, a, an outline around the, the course structure that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, 
it's just a process of diving in and, and taking notes as you go. It depends on the topic too. You know, for example, if I'm doing a course for an AWS certification exam, uh, it's just a matter of taking the exam and you know remembering the topics that were on it, <laughs> and then creating content around those topics. So yeah, uh, sometimes it's more straightforward than others. <laughs> so we are in the edge, and I want to ask you one more thing. Uh, if you were asked to say something to all of your learners in a single sentence, what would that be? Oh, uh, keep with it, guys. You know. Um, these are long courses and very meaty topics, but I think you'll find it rewarding. And uh, yeah, the one sentence is stick with it, persevere. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Perseverance is the key to success in a lot of situations. And uh, this is another one of them. Yeah. So let's quickly jump into the AMA questions that you got from the Google form that we released uh, it a few days ago. Okay. So here's the first question. Kindly make a course with the following contents. Uh, Spark 3 with Python, Tabla integrations and reports, streaming integrations with Kafka. I think it's a request for your courses, so probably you could take that. Oh, well, actually, there's some courses that cover that already. So, um, you know, check out my Spark courses out there. They, they actually cover those topics. So. <laughs> All right. So here's another question. Yep. Mm, getting a data science job requires experience and experience requests a job. So how can I break this infinite loop? Cool. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I actually have a YouTube video on that. If you search our, our YouTube channel for Sundog Education, I think it's like, you know, how to get experience in big data or something like that. Mm. Uh, but the short version is, you know, you can get experience without having a job. You know, you can make your own experience. Uh, go do some uh, Kaggle challenges, you know, and then there are a lot of employers that are like searching for winners of Kaggle challenges and reaching out to them mm. and saying, you know, hey, would you like to do this for a job? Uh, you know, do some freelance work. You know, if you have a, a connection in the industry, uh, see if you can do a small job for them and like make your own experience. So you don't need to rely on an employer to give you experience. You yeah. can create your own experience, you know, through self-employment, uh, through your own experimentation, through open source projects, things like that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there, there are alternative ways of getting that experience. Absolutely. And here's another question for you. Hi, Frank. My name is David, uh, engineer in information systems field. I've been working with data as data engineer and uh, BI engineer in the past six years and learned a lot uh, using your big data and, Hadoop and Spark courses, and I loved it. My question is based on your experience and knowledge. Uh, what will be the best practices to explore and play and what new technologies? Uh, what material should I read uh, based on those books are out of date and technology keeps updating all the time? What should I do to become a better data engineer? Wow. Um yeah. Well, I think he, he does hit on a big issue there and that a lot of books become very quickly out of date. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just to sort of give a shout out to Manning, who put us together here, you know, I think they've done a really good job of offering alternative <laughs> yeah. platforms for presenting information that are more dynamic and updated online. Totally. So uh, things like that can help, you know, keep with your keep your stuff up to date. But yeah, it, it's moving quickly. And um, I guess one insight is that he was specifically asking about the world of big data mm. and the underlying technologies there really aren't changing that quickly. They're being packaged in new ways and, you know, within different products, you know, for example, this new Cloudera data platform thing. But under the hood, you know, it's largely the same open source components. You know, there's, you know, bits of Hadoop in there and, you know, Apache Spark and uh, in the world of deep learning, you know, TensorFlow. Mm. Um, and, and those fundamentals are changing and evolving over time. But, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of how to use them are not changing yeah, very, yeah, very yeah. quickly. Uh, especially with things like Spark, you know, like we see a lot of these technologies where they have these big, scary, major version releases, but really they're just changing incrementally over time. So, mm. you know, my advice would be to subscribe to the mailing list for these vendors that you care about. So if you care about Elasticsearch, for example, subscribe to the Elasticsearch mailing list. Make sure you know about the new features that are coming out and, and learn about them as they as they 
uh, are, are introduced. Mm-hmm. You know, just sort of like staying connected to the creators of the technologies you care about is probably the best way to stay on top of these uh, more gradual changes. And you just have to be vigilant, you know, pay attention, uh, keep your eyes open. And, um, and I, I'm not sure how useful advice that is, but that's how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it should probably help them because that is how we can keep in touch with them. That is how we can keep us most updated with the latest trends that they release, right? So I think it should, it, it should probably help them. And also another way, so I'm gonna ask you one more question in the end. So when someone trying to get into the big data, machine learning and these all the stuff, so specifically into the big data, right? Yeah. So what do you prefer them to be get ready with? Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, Python is kind of becoming ubiquitous, mm. you know, across the world of data analytics, big data, whatever you want to call it. I think people are calling it data analytics more these <laughs> days, but, you know. It changes cool. a lot, yeah. Um, you know, and you need to learn Python. You need to learn about cloud computing, you know. So uh, it would definitely be helpful to, you know, understand AWS a little bit or whatever cloud platform you want. Because if you are dealing with, you know, quote unquote, big data, you're probably going to need to process that on a cluster and not a single machine. So, mm. you know, go get an AWS cloud practitioner certification or something just to at least get the basics under your belt. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, cloud computing and Python, I think, are sort of the uh, prerequisites for getting into this field. Absolutely. Uh, we are in the end. Frank, uh, if you want to share anything to our listeners, please go ahead. And thank you so much for this. Oh, cool. Well, uh, I'll give myself a plug then. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve that. Uh, yeah. So, you know, thanks again to, to Manning for bringing us together. And uh, if you want to go find my courses on the Manning live video platform, which is a pretty cool way of like, you know, yeah. blending a, a text experience with a video experience. Yeah. Uh, just go to Manning.com, click on live video, search for Frank Kane, and you'll find my stuff there. Um, also, you can hit up uh, sundogeducation.com for my own website. And uh, you can connect with us there on social, the social media platform of your choice. Great. Uh, I'll consider adding everything that you could read Sundog Education in the description. And also don't forget to check the episode description for Frank's three video courses giveaway from Manning. Follow up the steps to join the giveaway. And thank you so much for making this happen, Frank. I really mean it. I believe this episode will surely help someone transforming their careers into self-employment. And thank you so much for joining us, Frank. It was really, really fun having you. All right. Thanks for having me. It was fun.